Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I think most of you know me by now, but for those who don't, I'm Ruth. Via this podcast, I'm particularly interested in sharing the money stories of just everyday Kiwis, no matter their age or stage of life. And I learn their story and condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable and hopefully useful information shared by fellow Kiwis who have gone out on a limb to speak with me and share their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance right here in Aotearoa. So let's crack on. Today I'm looking forward to telling you all about 37-year-old Tui and her partner Marcus, who's 35. Now my guest today wanted to remain anonymous and these days I just let people I speak with choose their own names and she chose one of my absolute favourites, Tui. Now, we predominantly spoke about her journey, but further on, she does weave in some information about her partner, Marcus. Now, Tui came across my podcast during lockdown, and it was after hearing the money journeys of so many other Kiwis that she felt she would have a good story to share herself, one that would inspire others to improve their financial lives, just like listening to this very podcast helped her to do the same. Now, Tui described herself as someone who has worked hard to get her financial house in order, and in the last three years in particular, she's made really great progress. She had spent her teens and twenties gathering life experiences by living and working overseas, getting an education, beginning a career in the wine industry, and also buying a home with a friend. But more recently, she has increased her understanding of personal finance, and when she added that new knowledge to her situation, well, she's moved ahead now with her partner Marcus, in leaps and bounds. And amid a pandemic, they actually bought the house from her friend. Both have changed careers and both are focusing on debt reduction and getting ahead. So I know you are going to enjoy learning how that has all worked out for them. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I'll take a quick moment to tell you about Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. In this podcast, I've spoken to many people who live and work between a few countries. Maybe they work overseas for part of the year and have assets, bank and superannuation accounts in that country, but then return home to family in another. These global citizens and digital nomads use Pocketsmith's multi-currency feature to manage bank accounts and assets in different countries and upload digital copies of all the essential documents specific to each country. This gives them the confidence to do their own financial admin and keep the cash flow, well, flowing, no matter where they are in the world. Use Pocketsmith to keep track of your whole financial life in one place, no matter if that place is here, there, or somewhere in between. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now we got started by rewinding back to Tui's younger years. She said that looking back, she grew up in an affluent home and with her older sister was able to attend a private school and with that came an excellent education and lots of extracurricular activities. From the age of about 10, she remembers going into her dad's work and being paid to do basic office work like filing and random jobs that no one else wanted to do. Some days during the school holidays, she would go in for three to four hours at a time, getting paid about $10 an hour, which was pretty awesome money for a young kid. And there were no complaints from her at the time, she said. And her memories of that time was that she was pretty happy to head off to work with him. So she had the willingness to work from a pretty young age. When I asked what she did with the money that she made, she said that she and her sister were always a little bit different in terms of their spending habits, with Tui always naturally being a bit of a saver of the money that she made. She remembers going on summer holidays each year and they would get daily pocket money allowances of one to two bucks a day to buy themselves an ice cream or a wee treat. Now Tui would barely spend it and would more or less hoard it so that by the time they returned home, Tui would have most of her money still and her sister would have zero. Now spenders get a bit of a hard time so I had to ask what her sister was like these days. Now she is still a spender but she has learned to enjoy her money and spend some but also set herself up financially for the future, and she is doing really well, Tui said. So what did Tui's parents teach her to do with the little bits of money that she was making throughout the year? Were there some money lessons there, I wondered? Well, no, not really. That was where she thought the lessons taught at home just didn't go quite far enough. It sounded like, as is quite common, she was not taught much beyond saving money for immediate or short-term goals. 
So ultimately, kids are taught to save up and then spend everything they have and then just repeat the process. She always liked to have something to show for the money she spent and would use some of her money to go out to enjoy the experience of movies with friends to create memories and to save towards a bigger item. If they had a holiday planned, she would save up in anticipation of that, she said. When she hit about 16 years of age, the lessons about money, they did change up a gear. She would get given $50 to $60 a month with the intention that this would teach her how to budget. Now, she was expected to use that money to pay for all of her social outings and some clothing, but she said that while the intention was good, the execution of it was not well-defined, and if she went shopping with her mum and found something that she really liked, then her mum would just buy it instead of Tui. So there were good intentions, but the follow-through wasn't quite there, she said. And with a teenage daughter of my own, I know I'm guilty of this too, stepping into pay when I should just let her experience that feeling of spending her own money. To her credit, my daughter will often say, just back off, mum, I've got this. Now, when Tui was 17, she picked up a waitressing job at a restaurant. The job came about due to the proximity of her workplace to her home, and it sounded like one that she just gently moved into. Now, these are often the best jobs to get. There's no big, daunting interview process. Often the introduction and recommendation is made by a friend, and the timing was right that the restaurant simply needed help and she was available to work. She doesn't recall ever making much money at that role, but it was a good experience nonetheless. She worked just one to two evenings a week, and I wondered how she juggled that in her final year of school. It turned out that she had an enormous amount to contend with in her final year at school. She described that final year as being quite difficult due to a grandparent passing away and her parents splitting up in what turned out to be a pretty messy and nasty separation. And I really felt for Tui, as a teenager, having to endure and bear witness to all that. She did her best to keep on track, but it was her good grades in her previous year that saw her scrape through and get her university entrance. Her parents' divorce got pretty ugly when it came to money, and Tui had a front row seat. Her mum had always worked, but her career was restricted as she was the main caregiver to Tui and her older sister, while her dad was given the freedom to be able to work full-time. Now, in the divorce, her father was doing his level best to not give a penny more to her mother than he absolutely had to. And that, you could imagine, led to friction and a severing of his relationship, not only with his now ex-wife, but also with Tui, and that remains the case today. She said her final year was pretty full on in terms of teenage emotions and the turmoil of her family life. But at the same time, the school she went to gave her so many opportunities to try different sports and different classes, to throw herself into performing arts and spend time with good friends. As a teenager, you do put a lot of pressure on yourself and the school itself also had pretty high expectations for students too. So although tough, that final year was not wasted. And there were a lot of positives to help her combat the drama at home. And I'm so pleased for her that she was able to focus in on those positive experiences. Tui finished school and then took a gap year. And she didn't just leave home, she left the country entirely. Now, when she looks back, she can see that a lot of her decisions in her younger years were about facilitating travel and experiences. And this gap year really did open up the world to her. Now, unexpectedly, in his will, her grandfather had left Tui and each of her cousins $10,000. She was not particularly close with her granddad, so it was definitely a surprise to have been thought of in his will. So she applied to a gap scheme and was accepted, and this inheritance money was then used to fund her gap year in the UK. Now, there are, apparently, I learned, many schemes out there specifically aimed at helping teenagers have a year away. She had the choice of working at a school or an outdoor education facility. The idea was that they would help place you wherever you decided to go and they would smooth the way for you, giving you a point of contact and helping with any issues. She left in early January of 2004 and spent a full 12 months away and she absolutely loved it and still reflects back on it today. Now Tui, who had attended a private school herself, ended up working in a private school in Dorset in the UK which was quite a different experience, she said, as most of the students were boarders, uh, separated out into houses of around 50 students, and she helped look after one of those houses. There were other young adults like herself called Gap Girls or Gap Boys from all over the world looking after other houses. She went over on a volunteer visa, and she was paid just £80 a month. 
She was given free accommodation and food and was expected to work just four days a week, leaving her plenty of time to explore. She worked mainly in the boarding house, where she would do breakfast duty and supper duty. She wouldn't cook, but would do all the setup and the cleaning. And she also helped in the school tuck shop and the office. And they also tried to find work for gap kids in their area of particular interest. And in Tui's case, she loves the theatre, so she'd go and help in theatre classes. Now, other than those tasks, she was just generally around being the responsible adult about the place, which was pretty ironic as she was only 18 years old herself. But she said it was a really fun experience and such an eye-opener to be 18, away from home, and getting to decide and do everything for herself. And she is amazed that she had enough common sense around money that it all worked out. She and her mates would find cheap flights and head to other countries on their days off because they were so close by and everything was just so accessible. I asked Tui how she managed financially while she was away because 10,000 New Zealand dollars exchanged into pounds was still not a lot of money, even back in 04. Now, for the most part, she did really well at controlling her spending and living within her means, she said. Everything was relatively cheap over there and her money did seem to stretch quite far. However, she did remember in the last couple of months asking her mum for just a little bit extra, just a small amount to tide her over until she came home. Now, I find that gap years are quite polarising. Some see it as a waste and some as a wonderful experience. And from the details Tui shared with me, it sounded like a really valuable time in her life and it helped to give her some future direction. But she found that coming home after such a dynamic year away took some adjusting. She felt quite restless as she had been away, had such an international experience, but upon her return, everything back home was just the same as when she'd left it. So Tui needed to find her next move and because she had always been interested in the outdoors and horticulture at high school, She had it in her mind to just jump on a plane, fly over to Australia to work in the wine industry, particularly to take part in a grape harvest. She hadn't exactly thought through the logistics and the money, but her restless spirit was on the search to do something. Her mum, however, stepped in, and Tui said they had quite a, quote, robust conversation about her future, with her mum encouraging her to settle into some study instead. The reality that she wasn't going to have that overseas harvest experience was a tough pill to swallow, but because mums are often right about these sorts of things, Tilly found a course that she could study at Lincoln University, which is a 25-minute drive from her mum's home in Christchurch, and she enrolled in 2005. She began a Bachelor of Viticulture and Enology, which is, she said, a three-year degree designed to educate graduates who want to get into the wine industry. And it's a pathway into a sought-after industry. And as soon as she could finish, she would be able to launch herself into the working world and also back into travel and vineyard harvests. In 2005, and in preparation for uni, she went to a bank to open an account and straight off the bat, her bank offered her both a credit card and a $2,000 overdraft. Because she considers herself a saver and was out of debt by this stage, she just always hated debt. She remembers thinking that she was walking into a trap by accepting this offer. It felt so irresponsible that they would offer that to her, someone with effectively no income and no money. But because she thought that this is what you did when you went to study, she accepted both. She recalled that in her final year, and she still does not know what possessed her to do it, but she made her bank reduce the limits on both. She just never liked the idea of being in overdraft and carrying a balance on her credit card. Such a terrible idea and feeling, she said. And she remembers this moment mainly because all of the bank staff within earshot looked at her like, what are you going to do that for? So for her first two years of study, she lived at home with her mum commuting out to campus and I asked her how she got there. When she first got her license, she said she had the use of an old family single cab ute and her sister had learned to drive in it and now it was Tui's turn. It had no power steering and a manual gearbox and I could imagine that it looked quite out of place at her private school because it was not flashed by any stretch of the imagination. And when she returned from overseas, she was allowed to use it again. From her mum's point of view, she knew she could only fit two passengers in it, it was very slow and it was cheap to run. I think that using your parents' cars for as long as you can get away with it is another useful budgeting hack for teenagers and students. Yes, you will have to pay for petrol and perhaps warrant of fitnesses and servicing, but because you don't have the outlay of purchasing the vehicle itself, well, that is a huge saving. Now, Tui would have liked to enter a hall of residence in her first year, but she enrolled too late to apply. 
And this is not a bad thing in my experience. Living at home, if you can do it, is a far cheaper option and Tui promises you that you will still make friends on campus. Only in her third year at uni did she go flatting out near campus, paying just $60 a week for rent, which was just the best score at the time, she said. She also worked throughout her study, and for Tui, her friendly nature paid off when she struck up a conversation with the manager of her local liquor store one afternoon soon after she started at uni. She said they had a really awesome chat, and then suddenly he's like, are you looking for a job? So she worked there one night a week and all day Saturday for the first two years of study, and it was a fantastic job due, in part, to the staff specials and staff discounts. Plus, it was close to both Lincoln and Canterbury universities, so there was a great atmosphere with students coming and going. During the long holiday break over the summers, she also picked up full-time work in vineyards both in North Canterbury and Marlborough, and this gave her two things, money and hands-on experience in the wine industry. Tui needed to work to support herself, and while her father offered no financial support at all, as a way to help Tui out with her education, her mum, who was still finding her own feet, didn't charge her rent or board. Accommodation and food costs are the single biggest expenses of a student, and one that students unfortunately have to borrow money for. So this was a huge help from her mum. But there was the expectation to step up and be an adult and do certain chores and to cook a couple of times a week and just generally be helpful around the home. It was no longer the full-service hotel you get when you're a kid. Tui paid for her education by taking out a student loan, but because she was managing to live at home, she needed to borrow less money. She said that it was when listening to my podcast where I interviewed people who actually thought about how to pay cash for their education before going that she was simply amazed that they did that. She said she knows it sounds ignorant now, but she just thought it was the norm that you just got a student loan for your education. She didn't even comprehend that she could save money and pay cash because she doesn't recall having anyone around her who did that. And if she did make money, no part of her thought to put it towards paying for a university paper with cash, when it could be put to use going to something like the Hokitika Wild Foods Festival instead. Now sadly, this is not an uncommon thing for me to hear, and I'm hoping to change that point of view by having people just like Tui speak about the alternatives to student loan debt. I'm pleased to say that I've been rabbiting on about it in this podcast long enough now that I'm getting emails from current students who are paying cash for their studies, which is absolutely fabulous to hear. In her final year, she was actually able to claim a student allowance, which was based solely on the income of her mum. Now, I wondered how that came about. Her relationship with her father was so strained since the divorce that she had little to no involvement with him, so it took quite a bit of paperwork, she said, including outside references and her mum providing a lot of documentation but she was able to provide information to show that there had not been, and never would be, any financial support from her father. That meant that they only took her mother's income into account, and her income was at a low enough level to qualify Tui for a student allowance of about $180 each week. Because her rent was just $60 a week, she could afford to live comfortably enough on this amount, and hindsight told her that she could have applied for this earlier had she known about it. In her third and final year, she also picked up work closer to university. It was bar work, and she did a couple of shifts a week. So with her student allowance and income from her part-time job, she made enough to live and still have a great time. In total, she amassed about $16,000 in student loans. Being able to live at home during her first two years, also working a part-time job during term time, and picking up summer vineyard work, and then receiving a student allowance in her final year, absolutely helped to keep her student loan low. And I honestly think that had she had the knowledge and experience that she has now, she could have come out debt-free and still had a great time. So she had enough of a level head to study and work simultaneously. She said she didn't have the highest academic record, but still she proudly has her degree on the wall. And both that ability to work, plus having a qualification, has opened doors for her over the years, and it helped her into a career of winemaking-focused work. Now, her first job out of university was on a North Canterbury vineyard, just doing minimum wage vineyard work. She might have the degree that showed what she is capable of, but it still meant she started at the bottom of the heap when it came to the work she did, and it was shockingly low paying, she said. A selling point of any tertiary qualification is that you will earn more money because of it. 
But when she started work, having a degree didn't mean you earned one cent more than someone who had not studied. She thinks that this is slowly changing in that industry, and COVID has seen vineyards become more flexible with hours worked and also with pay rates. It used to be, here's the job, like it or lump it, but today vineyards are trying to make working for them more appealing, and that includes considering the fact that a recent graduate may have more knowledge and skills than someone coming into the industry for the first time with none. She ended up at her first job purely because her boyfriend at the time was working on the property. Another chance conversation, this time with the vineyard owner, ended with them asking Tui if she happened to be looking for a job at harvest time. Heck yes was the answer, and finally she got to take part in a harvest. At the age of 20, and with a freshly minted degree, the reality of working in the wine industry didn't quite match up with the best practice she had been taught, but she said it was a great lesson on what not to do, and it was still good to experience that side of things, if only to teach her how, when given the opportunity, she would do things better. It was a really helpful experience, and I think we all need those sucky first jobs to challenge our thinking. She parted ways with that boyfriend and finally got on a plane to Australia, buying a one-way ticket to Perth. She located herself in a wine region and just went about door knocking and cold calling to find herself a job. She ended up with a vineyard job for four months and then also got to enjoy a harvest in that region too. She said, for someone in their early 20s, it's such an intense and fun time. People from all over the world pitch in to work hard and play hard and have a good time. And she would stay in an area just long enough to really get to know the culture of the place and the diverse range of people that she worked with. And those connections she made with people from overseas have also since been invaluable. To be able to experience these times has definitely been a huge understated blessing in her winemaking career, she said. After a seven-month stint working there, she came home to New Zealand ended up at the top of the South Island, a region she has spent time working in during the university holidays. And she's come and gone from New Zealand many times over the years, but has based herself there or thereabouts ever since. Now, you know I had to ask her about her student loan repayments while she was both in and out of New Zealand working. So you must start making repayments towards your loan, even if you are still studying, I should point out. If you earn more than $21,268 a year, which is $409 a week before tax. Now this is the repayment threshold and it is the job of the IRD to begin to collect payments from you and they will take 12% of your pay. If you are outside of New Zealand for around five out of six months, you might become what the IRD calls overseas based and interest could be applied to your loan. And for those thinking about leaving the country, it absolutely makes sense to talk to the IRD before you leave to ask about your situation. Now, it may not surprise you to hear that interest on her student loan just didn't factor into her decision-making at all. She did know about it, but she was just nonchalant about it and thought she'd just deal with it when she got home. And she thought, look, what's an extra couple of hundred in interest on a $16,000 loan? Now, out of interest, I did some math on that assumption. Currently, if you are deemed to be living outside of New Zealand, 2.8% interest is calculated daily and added to your loan balance at the end of each year. So, after a year away, her loan would grow to $16,448. After two years, $16,908. After three years, $17,381. After four years, $17,867. And after five years, $18,367. You get the idea. You pay interest on your interest. Within five short years, her loan could have grown by $2,367. Her loan was small in comparison with many. I went to uni with people who left New Zealand with no intention of ever making payments, and I dread to think what they owe today. So I asked Tui when she started paying attention to her student loan, because I was aware that she had actively paid it off. Using the top of the South Island as a base, she grabbed opportunities to work grape harvests overseas in places like Germany and America, for example, and she bounced back and forth to various countries for a couple of years, working three to four month stints. Tui had avoided any other kind of debt, always managing her income well enough to cover all her immediate and short-term expenses, such as plane tickets, much like she did when she was a kid. But it was during one period back in New Zealand when her mum ended up gifting her some money towards her student loan, and it was that event that motivated her into action. Now this sum of money, which was about $5,000, 
was some kind of reparation to do with her parents' protracted divorce settlement. And because Tui was in and out of New Zealand, she had made her mum a signatory in her absence, so that if she needed to access anything official, her mum could do it for her. And it was because of this that her mum was aware of Tui's student loan balance because the statements were being sent to her mum's house. So her mum directly deposited the $5,000 onto Tui's student loan, meaning that the decision about what to do with the money was taken right out of her hands. Much like others I've spoken to, the student loan balance often seems like a mountain too big to climb, but it was after seeing her balance drop by such a meaningful amount that something clicked for Tui, and she thought, you know what, I can do this, I can pay this thing off. She was planning a trip to the US to do a harvest, and she just got the idea in her head that she was going to get the student loan paid off before she left. Creating that goal definitely spurred her on to just get rid of it. In my view, this is where student loans need more parental intervention. Firstly, to step in before a student loan is taken out by discussing alternatives, and secondly, to get their tamariki to take it seriously and take their head out of the sand once they have taken out student loans. Tui was earning about $16.50 an hour, which must have been at or just marginally above minimum wage when she decided to get after her loan, as well as 12% automatically being skimmed out of each paycheck. She was also making voluntary payments on top of that as well. Whenever she had spare cash, she threw it at her debt. Now, it took her 18 months to pay off, and she was 28 when she made the last payment. And I asked if she recalled making that final payment. Absolutely, yes. She said that she had worked out that via her wages, the debt would be completely gone within a month, but she was impatient to just get on with life. So she scraped together the amount owing, and she made the final payment. She opened a bottle of wine to celebrate her achievement, hence the title of today's podcast. I'll drink to that. Now this is a remarkable achievement and shows what you can do even on a really low wage if you decide to get after it. So what advice would Tui now give to somebody who has decided they want to head into tertiary study? Now she doesn't want to put pressure on high school students, but would encourage them to really think about creating the routine of putting some of their income from their part-time and holiday jobs aside for higher education, and to apply for scholarships, as many as you can. And yes, a hall of residence is fun, but you don't have to do it. You can still have a great time and make plenty of friends by living at home or living more cheaply in a flat. And what would she say if, even after you had tried your best to avoid debt, you still took some on? She just wishes that people would take student loans more seriously because their impact on your life is bigger than you think. They do affect your ability to travel for long periods overseas. When you work in New Zealand, they take 12% of your paycheck. And if you want to buy a house, well, they definitely impact your ability to borrow. She said, quote, if a bank were to give you an interest-free loan, you wouldn't be like, oh, well, it's just free money. You know there are big consequences to taking out a loan with a bank. But people seem to think government debt is inconsequential, and she is telling you that it has consequences. Yes, it is interest-free, but it doesn't mean it's free. You have to pay it back, and owing it does actually have an impact on you later down the track. Years later, when she visited a mortgage broker, they asked her about student debt, and by then, of course, she had none, but asked what impact having one would have had, and they said, well, yes, absolutely, it would affect your ability to buy a house because your income would be 12% lighter each week. If you make less, you borrow less. Plus, having 12% of your pay taken away each week means it takes a lot longer to save up a deposit, or to save up for anything else for that matter. Because, like her, not many students think about buying a house in the future, of course. They just have no idea that having a student loan would impact future lending potential. No idea, she said. And once again, I think there is a role for parents and trusted adults to play in educating their kids about the future impact of the decisions that they make today. Now, after another working trip to America and one to Australia, she decided it was time to come home to New Zealand and to be an adult and to get a serious job. And she managed to get a winemaking job, which she soon settled into. In the back of her mind, she had always planned to buy a home, but had no real guidance around that or what it looked like. So she went to a mortgage broker just to get an idea of where she was at. Now their advice was invaluable and it helped her understand how much of a deposit she would need and how close she was to being able to afford a home. 
and she advises wannabe homeowners to do this exercise long before they think about visiting an open home. But she was closer than she thought, and with just another year or two of aggressive saving, she found out that she could be ready to buy a home. But as she saw house prices begin to climb, she became pretty dismayed at what her money would buy her. A rundown granny flat was not the home she had envisaged for herself, but it was what she could afford on a single income. She went house hunting by herself and became more and more dejected by what she saw, and she was lamenting the crappy houses she was viewing to a friend who was also talking about buying a house, when out of the blue he said, well, I'd buy a house with you, and all of a sudden they both realised that this was the best idea ever. Within just a month, these two good friends had put an offer on a house they both liked, and within two and a half months it was all signed, sealed and delivered. They paid $365,000 in 2017 for a three-bedroom home in a town in the Upper South Island. Now, how was the bank to deal with, given they were just two mates buying a house? Although they acknowledged it was not the norm, the bank was absolutely fine with it. It was something they were beginning to see more of, and the whole process went very smoothly, Tui said. Now, Tui and her friend went 50-50 on the house, and they each had a mortgage of about $146,000. Collectively, they had a 20% deposit of $73,000, but because her $35,000 deposit was just slightly smaller than his, her mortgage was slightly higher to make up for it. Soon after taking ownership, she moved in, but although he was planning to, he didn't quite make it. At the last minute, the opportunity to work overseas popped up for him, and he grabbed the chance. So they talked it through and decided that they would both pay to furnish the two other bedrooms and get some harvest workers in to pay rent while he was away. He returned home and he moved in, but after a period of just about six months he went away for the Christmas period and he kind of just never moved back in. And basically his situation had changed and he ended up living in accommodation provided by his employer, meaning that he could again rent out his room. Now this was not in line with what they had planned to do when they bought the home together. It was always the intention that they would own the home together, live in the home together and take care of the home together. But now she found herself having to politely ask that he come back to help her do the domestic chores that needed to be done when you own a home. And it just got a bit strange too, he said. Whereas she wanted a home to live in, and that is what he initially wanted too, home ownership for him became very focused on money and making his fair share, or more if he could, from the flatmates who came to share the home with Tui. It was home to her and an asset to him. Whereas Tui thought she was signing up to living in a home, it became more of a boarding house or money-making venture, not what she wanted at all. Yet, despite this unusual situation, with things being a bit strained, they were still friends, but she was kind of hanging around hoping that things might improve and he might start to see her side of the situation. Well, he didn't, and after about 18 months of this too, he thought that something had to give here. Just like his situation and motivations for owning a home had changed, hers had too. She had a new partner, Marcus, plus she had decided to take a break from the wine industry and she quit her job in January of 2020 to try something different. At this time, she started going through the motions of trying to work out if she could afford to pay her co-owner out, but couldn't make the math work at that point, particularly now that she was taking a brief break from work. So there was a lot to think about. Now, making the most of her break from work, Marcus and Tui had left the region for a holiday, putting three lovely harvest workers in the home while they were away. And then COVID hit, and we all know how chaotic that was, right? Tui was locked down elsewhere in the country, and trying to organise the people in her home who were coming and going and trying to comply with all the COVID rules around vineyard workers and working in bubbles, she ended up with five people in her house instead of three, just so they could then all go to work as a team in their bubble. Now, it suited her co-owner very well because it meant that he was getting quite the income from this. Now, Tui was managing everything, and it also meant that Tui had some income coming in too. Now, given the fact that she had quit her job in January of 2020, moments before COVID hit, she was suddenly unable to go out and get work. Talk about bad timing. It was crazy, crazy time, she said. Now, as soon as they could, after lockdown, Tui and Marcus returned home, plus they decided that they were going to try to buy the house off her friend together, giving them a goal to head for. Now, from that point, they just went on a mission to secure jobs. 
they needed steady jobs and a steady paycheck to create the paper trail to prove to their bank that they could be trusted with a mortgage. She could have returned to the wine industry, but she wanted a break and picked up some temporary work with the 2020 elections, then began working full-time in a bookstore, which, as a huge bookworm, she absolutely loved. She said she literally got to read books and get paid for it, which was amazing. Marcus picked up full-time work, meaning that both of them had a consistent weekly paycheck coming in, which was enough to satisfy the bank. But they were still a little light on funds. She said she was also fortunate to borrow $10,000 from her mum and another $5,000 from a friend to make them look a little better in the eyes of their lenders. By this stage, the relationship between her and her co-owner friend had completely soured, and in a moment I will share her pointers and lessons from this experience for others who are looking to co-own a house with a friend. I wondered, of course, how did that buyout process go for Tui, and how did they come up with a price? Tui and her partner went to a different mortgage broker and got the advice that each party should have a realtor come and do an appraisal and come up with a price. Now, unsurprisingly, the values given were poles apart, due in part to the intentions of each party being quite different. Much like if the house went on sale on the open market and you would expect to get the highest value going, the friend wanted that too. Now, Tui obviously didn't want to have to bid for her own home on the open market and wanted to come to a mutual arrangement between the two of them. In the end, Tui and Marcus, they looked at both figures, they took the advice of their bank, and they looked deeply into what they could actually afford. They called a meeting with her friend, and they offered one price. It was $550,000, take it or leave it. And he took it. I asked if any part of her just considered selling the house, moving out, and moving on, as it would have been very clean that way. But her view was, and rightly so, the hassle of selling in the current market finding somewhere else in the current market, it would have been even harder work. And better the devil you know than the devil you don't, I guess. She said that in the end, you sometimes need to let go of the situation and just come to peace with it. And in the end, she did, saying to Marcus that they had done their homework, they'd put in the best offer that they could, and what will be, will be. If it was not accepted, they would sell the house and she would have been absolutely okay with that. They had walkaway power, which is a valuable asset in any transaction. Tui and Marcus joined their finances to buy the home, plus he used his KiwiSaver to add to their deposit, seeing them taking on a new mortgage together of $310,000. Now, let me share with you Tui's absolute musts before signing on the dotted line when buying a house with a friend. They are as follows. Number one, time frame. How long does each party hope to own the house for? Stick to the time frame where possible or have really good communication if you want to extend. Number two, take a deep look at the person you are buying with. Their habits now will show you their habits when you own the house together. Number three, how does the situation look once the property has been purchased? This includes a number of aspects such as who takes care of the cleaning and maintenance of the property. Again, how does this look if one of the parties moves out during your agreed time frame? How will bills be paid? Is one person in charge or do you need a bank account you share for house expenses? Now Tui learnt this the hard way when she became the responsible one, having to always chase up when rates or insurances would be paid and making sure her friend's money would be in her bank account when needed. And in the end, she asked for a house account that they shared, although this came about almost two years after owning the house together. You need to also agree how you will split any money from any extra people who might live with you in the house. Now this was a contentious issue between Tui and her friend. Who knew, she said, that there were so many ways to divvy this income up. Now number four, very important, have an exit strategy. Talk about how you intend to sell the house once the time frame is up. Does this involve one person buying the other out? How and what selling looks like to you, whether that be an auction, with open homes, etc., it's important that you talk about that. How do you both agree on the price of the house if one wants to buy the other out? Five, and finally, Tui said it might sound a bit pessimistic, but should things go south with the time frame or the person, it is always a good idea to think about when you might pull the plug with the agreement. Life is too short if the arrangement is not working. Now, unfortunately, the friendship ended its season, as sometimes friendships do, but Tui soon got on with moving on, and that included getting a new job. Once the dust settled, she found a new job that she absolutely loves, working as a logistics manager for a company in her region. 
It is in a completely different industry to wine and books, and she finds it a refreshing change. She started there in 2021, and if she were to work full-time, could earn $70,000 per year, which is a big step up from what she was earning in the wine industry. However, she often works a few hours less a week, so she said she'd put her salary at about $65,000 a year. Still, this is the highest income she has ever earned. She took a huge leap of faith to completely change her career, and she said that if I had told her that after leaving her wine job, she would be in a more satisfying role, getting paid more, she would have found that incredible. And she wishes she could have told herself that everything will be okay, or actually even better. She had contemplated going back to study, but at the end of the day, her initial qualification, coupled with her extensive variety of work experience, plus the ability to be just a darn nice human being, and those are my words, not hers, she's too humble to speak so well of herself, it meant that she had all the skills many employers would need, and what she didn't know about her new role, well, they could teach her. Her employer, she said, is super flexible, and she works between their warehouse or her home, and they trust her judgment on where she needs to work from, and once again, I think we have COVID to thank for this flexibility. But she has not completely turned her back on her previous career, and she has a second job working at a local cellar door just one day a fortnight, earning $24 per hour. It's a flexible job where she is meeting some lovely people and is enjoying keeping her toe dipped into the wine world, plus she gets a monthly wine allocation as a bonus. Now Marcus is an apprentice builder now, and he is loving it. He also had a big career shift away from the armed forces and he is currently earning a living wage of $23.65 an hour, working about 45 hours a week, with a huge opportunity to earn more as he becomes more qualified. They also have a fourth income stream. They still have short-term boarders living with them, sometimes a single person and sometimes a couple, and they pay $185 a week per person, inclusive of power, internet, it's a furnished room, electricity is provided, And just the basics too, such as washing powder and what have you. It's a good deal, they think, and much easier to just have them paying one set amount instead of trying to divvy up the bills. Now I like how they, like many do these days, myself included, bring income into their whare from a variety of sources. I think that it adds variety to your working week, and it also means you have a wide range of marketable skills, which gives you more options if one part of your working puzzle ends or needs adjusting. So where does she see their financial future headed as a couple? She got quite into the barefoot investor and has implemented many of his strategies. And whereas I wondered if she might be pretty fierce about having her money be hers due to watching her father treat her mother that way, not so. They have combined their finances to a large degree. And I think that is testament to her being able to step back and look at lessons learned from watching her parents and then deciding what will work for her. Tui and Marcus are paid on the same day and they sit down and they direct their money where it needs to go to pay the mortgage and buy groceries and petrol and what have you. Once a week, she sits down and writes down what they have spent that week. Neither of them are frivolous spenders, so it's easy to see where their money is going and that keeps them both on track. And they have worked out exactly how much it takes to run their household and have come up with a figure and they have created a budget around that. Now, in music to my ears, and given that I was writing this up right at the time when Cyclone Gabrielle had created such havoc and tragedy up in the North Island, Tui and Marcus have an emergency fund of 10 grand. That could do a lot of good for them if ever such an event happened in their life. Plus, they have an extra account where they direct 20% of their pay so that they can make lump sum contributions to their mortgage when the bank allows them to. Now, the only money that they have separately is actually their splurge money which goes towards whatever they want, whether that be a hobby or saving up for something in particular. They have now been a couple for four years, and for all intents and purposes their money is together, meaning that they are working collectively towards a common goal. Now my sister Liz summed it up when she said that when her and her partner, now husband, combined their money, it was them against the world, and because they were working together financially, it was one less thing to worry about, and Tui feels the same way. She said that when she hears of couples who are obviously committed to each other, perhaps they own a home together and even have children, yet are still doing separate finances, she just wants to ask the question, why? 
For Tui and Marcus, she believes it has really accelerated their goals and progress because they're both in the same mindset and having joint finances has made it just so much easier to do the things they want to do. For example, paying back the people they borrowed money off was easier. They think of their money collectively and were doing it together. Now we came around to talking about KiwiSaver and she said that if you are not in KiwiSaver, well you should be, so there's a wee telling off for you. She joined early on, but with coming and going from New Zealand, she was very intermittent in her contributions, but the balance was at about $25,000 by the time she bought her first house, so it actually made up $25,000 of her $35,000 house deposit. I asked her thoughts on draining your KiwiSaver to buy a house, and she's on the fence with this one. She couldn't have bought a house without it, but wonders if perhaps she could have had she known she might need to one day, so let me explain. She didn't know she needed to be saving for a house until the time she wanted one and realised that she needed a deposit. Handily, her KiwiSaver had been growing because she had realised that she needed to save for retirement. So, as many do, she robbed her retirement fund to pay for her home. What would it have looked like if back when she signed up to her KiwiSaver, she also signed up to an investment account to grow a house deposit? If she was okay with forfeiting a small percentage of her pay for KiwiSaver, Could she have also allocated another small percentage to an investment outside a KiwiSaver? Now, I know it wouldn't attract employer contributions or the meagre annual contribution of $521 from the government, but from small acorns, mighty oaks grow, money compounds and grows if you invest a little and often, and then just leave it alone. Just like that student loan incurred a little more interest each month and then grew her debt, the opposite is true for investing. Now I know that this is certainly the angle that I'm taking with educating my daughter, telling her that three things are very likely to happen in life. She may choose to study and she may want to buy a home one day and she will want to retire one day. By saving for all three from the get-go, it gives her options and money if and when any of those things happen and I'll let you know how that goes. Now, if you are wanting to buy your first house this year or next, I get it, you will use your KiwiSaver because chances are you have no other savings. But if you have a much longer lead in time, please consider, as I'm teaching my daughter, plan for several scenarios. So both Tui and Marcus now have their KiwiSavers back on track and in a growth fund with simplicity. They contribute 4% from their incomes and her balance is at $25,000, again, five years after she drained it. Not great, she said, but not too bad either, and the good news is she can't get it out again. Now, at the time of our chat, she didn't have Marcus's KiwiSaver balance on hand, I'm sorry. So they are also each investing an additional 5% of their take-home pay into a Simplicity Investment Fund and also sharesies. Now, their intention is to increase their investment total up to 10%, meaning that collectively they would be setting aside 20% of their combined income into retirement funds which is more in keeping with what you will hear many Australians and Americans doing. Now, this is both brilliant and unusual, and I asked where she got the information to do this, and she credited the Barefoot Investor for wanting to set aside a far higher portion of their income into investments. That way, they will have a well-funded retirement. Like most who start out investing using sharesies, they had a real scattergun approach to choosing what to invest in, and they ended up with a real pick and mix of ETFs, ending up with far too many. And more recently, they've sold out many of their holdings and redirected that money into a total world fund and a New Zealand top 50. And that is it. Two funds that buy pretty much everything. She is really happy with the slim down mix of investments as she doesn't want to be watching it every day, and it is now on autopilot. Her balance with Simplicity is at $1,500, and she has $1,400 with Sharesies, and both of these are growing. I asked if there was a payoff date to their mortgage, and her answer was a good one, as soon as possible. Pre-COVID, she was more vague about it than she is now. While they would look for the cheapest interest rate and lock that in, they didn't go too much deeper than that. But now, and particularly with talk of inflation and recession, they are paying a lot more attention, which is excellent. They recently refixed their mortgage for three years at 6.19%. The outstanding balance is $273,000, and they make set payments towards this. 
They put a portion on a floating rate as well, and they already have that down to $20,000 and are aggressively paying it off to get it gone as soon as they can. In hindsight, they could have put more on floating because they have the income and the motivation to get stuck into paying it off. They now know they are capable of more than they realized. I asked Tui how her relationship is with her parents now and whether the relationship changed or improved between her and her father. Her mum is doing really well now. The divorce took about three years in total to finalize and she went on to find a job that she loved and to buy a home of her own. Tui said she chose not to pursue a relationship with her father as after the divorce it became incrementally more toxic, not less. And from stepping back and observing that whole situation and living that experience of her parents divorcing, she noticed that her dad, an apparently successful businessman, was all about showing wealth. Watching that made her move in the opposite direction to the example he was showing about what wealth looks like. That is not who she wants to be as a person, she said. So yes, she wants to pay off the mortgage as fast as possible. But neither her nor Marcus have these big dreams of earning $200,000 a year or more in order to buy more stuff. Happiness to them can be found by living a far simpler existence. They are very happy with what they have and the house they have and they don't want for much. From a young age with her urge to travel, she has always been about the experiences you gather with travel, not about getting a flash car, surrounding yourself with possessions or having the latest clothing. They sound to me like they have achieved the one thing her father might never achieve, and that's contentment. And it's my view that if they can feel content early in life, they've absolutely cracked it. The rest just flows because you are not constantly feeling like something is missing. And they'll both go on to earn great incomes, and they'll put those incomes to great use. Of that, I have no doubt. Money doesn't keep her up at night, and she does not want for anything. And although content, she is a touch impatient to get that mortgage paid off faster, which is an asset, not a drawback, I think. A bit of impatience will keep her keen to achieve and make her own luck in life. So while we were on the subject of her parents, what was one piece of advice, either good or bad, that they did teach her about money? Well, she didn't know whether it was advice, but it was just maybe that she had an awareness of how her parents treated their money, and that has helped her throughout life. She thinks a lot of people are just unaware of where their subconscious money beliefs have come from, but she's a little more tuned into hers. And that is what I picked up when I spoke to her. Too often, people keep referring back to what their parents taught them, and then making those mistakes their own too, but not so with Tui. Her observation skills have let her pick and choose what will and won't work for her. And if I gave her and Marcus 10 grand right now, what would they do with it? Well, without hesitation, it would go straight on the floating component of their mortgage. And her greatest triumph would be all the traveling she's done and the fact that she paid for it all in cash. She always managed to save what she needed to go travel and working when she got to her destination was incredibly helpful. As for her flop, it's that $16,000 student loan. It could have been avoided in the first place had she just had a bit more knowledge about it, she said. She is now fastidious, she said, with her budgeting, and definitely gets her nerd on and really enjoys looking at their numbers, she said. So when I asked her what they spent on groceries each month, without hesitation, she said $500 or sometimes even less, which I found staggering. So my next question was obviously, well, how on earth do you do that? Well, they cook at home and they buy in bulk at Bin In and other local retailers. She said it sounded weird to say in this day and age, but they just don't buy treat food. A bag of chips and onion dip on a Friday night is pretty much as radical as it gets. And nor are they big drinkers, which is ironic given the industry she was in, um, which can get incredibly expensive. She used to be, but at that time she got a wine allowance and since leaving the wine industry, they don't drink that much. They have a small vegetable garden, which has been a really great learning experience as well as a source of food. And she just grows the easy stuff that they know they'll eat, like spinach and lettuce and carrots and strawberries. And she reckons she's actually grown about $300 worth of strawberries this year alone. They are also mostly vegetarian and have been for years, and that's cheaper. Plus, they have a great circle of friends as well who have fruit trees and share other things from their gardens. And they share a lot of resources and produce. And it's a nice community, and it keeps the cost down too. And what about cars? Well, that trustworthy old ute is gone, I'm afraid. They have a used hybrid that they bought for $17,000 in mid-2022. 
and I was really surprised to hear that they took out a loan for it, purely because the timing was a bit off and they got backed into a bit of a corner. But as far as car loans go, it was small and they paid it off fast. In order to pay for the car, they got a $2,000 government rebate towards the deal and they sold Marcus's old car and put that towards the deal too. This totaled eleven grand, and they were saving hard to make up the $6,000 shortfall so that they could pay cash. But the price of EV suddenly went through the roof in New Zealand and they could see that by the time they got all the money saved, the price would have been even higher. So they bit the bullet, took out a small loan from the bank to cover the shortfall that they hadn't managed to save and they secured the car at a set price instead of paying goodness knows how much down the track. Then they focused hard on it and had that debt paid off within just two short months, paying a maximum of $200 in interest in that short time. Marcus uses the hybrid for work, so that really saves on fuel and they do have a second vehicle, a high-ace camper, And each month they spend just $120 on petrol, and that includes when they take the van away for the weekend. And finally, what resources might she recommend to you and I? Now, I'm not one to toot my own horn, and I'm really not, um, because she said that this podcast is one of her top recommendations, because it has been so helpful for her to hear Kiwi perspectives on Putia talked about, and the normalisation of the ups and downs of people's money journeys, because she said it makes you realise you're not alone. And the stories of others are incredibly relatable. So thank you once again to every single person who has let me share their story. You are honestly helping so many people plot and plan their own financial journey. Now she also rates The Barefoot Investor, the podcast It's No Secret that's put out by Colonel Wealth, Cooking the Books and a YouTube channel called A to Zen Life. And it talks about minimalism and money saving tips, which I suspect has played a part in keeping her grocery bills so very, very low. So I think that's pretty much a wrap. There were so many questions I didn't get to and I apologise for that but I do always say to the people I'm interviewing that I'm the worst interviewer of all time. We go down so many great tangents I generally just run out of time. Uh, So before I wrap up today I do just have another quick message from the lovely team at Pocketsmith today's show sponsors. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Tui and her partner Marcus have had a turbulent couple of years. In the last three years in particular, her financial knowledge has improved significantly and that has only come about because she decided to seek some new knowledge. Like most I speak to, Tui's money literacy was a bit lacking growing up with a few sporadic lessons during her teens, but luckily for her, she said she has always been pretty good at saving and that helped steer her away from debt, meaning that when she did work some stuff out, that was not a wrong that she needed to right. For parents who are listening to this, I think that hearing about Tui's parents' divorce shows you that your kids are listening to what you say and watching how you act both with each other and with money. And as we grow up, we will all bring some of what we learn from that experience into the way we handle money. I'm thankful for Tui's sake that she was and is level-headed enough to sort the good from the bad, and that has helped shape the way she is dealing with money in her own relationship now. What she observed, it didn't make her stuck as it does for some, Instead, it told her what she didn't want out of life, which in turn has helped her find out what she does want. I'm grateful that she shared her experience with us of buying and then selling a home bought with a friend. It's not all unicorns and rainbows, and if her practical suggestions are taken on board by others, well, she will be delighted. The upshot was that it taught her a life lesson, and she is now in her own home, and having that stable base and being able to place roots in a region they love it has let them both branch out and try new careers. It was not planned and it's all kind of bonkers that it all happened in the midst of a pandemic, but hey, that is life, stuff happens. But the more you work together as a team, the more you learn from past mistakes and experiences and the more financially fit and strong you become, the less these big life events will knock you around in the future. Now, Tui's final bit of wisdom for you is that she said, I know it's easy to look back and say, ah, I wish I knew this stuff when I was younger, but she really, truly does believe it's never too late to start where you are today. And that is her advice to you. Just make one positive financial move for yourself today and build on that. 
For her, a big jump in knowledge came when she was gifted a copy of the Barefoot Investor, which accelerated their goals and knowledge no end. So just find something that resonates with you and get cracking. Now finally, I just have to say a huge thank you to Tui for speaking with me on behalf of herself and her partner Marcus. Please stay curious, Tui. Stay positive. Keep meeting new people. And keep exploring your potential in the world because only good will come of it. There's actually one final thing I had to say. I am aware that these podcasts are getting longer and longer and I um, apologise and I don't apologise for that. People are just so done interesting and my conversations uh, do get a bit out of hand and when I'm editing them, I'm finding it harder and harder to leave details out. But I will be trying to rein myself in from here on in, so wish me luck. So that is all from me this week. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com and please do share this podcast with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.